Hey friends, my name is Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I chat with Tim Challies about the topic of walking through grief and his new book, Seasons of Sorrow, The Pain of Loss and the Comfort of God. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Now, before we get started, let me introduce you to my guest. A pastor, noted speaker, and author of numerous articles, Tim Challies is a pioneer in the Christian blogosphere. Tens of thousands of people visit challies.com each day, making it one of the most widely read and recognized Christian blogs in the world. Tim is the author of several books, including Visual Theology and Epic, an around-the-world journey through Christian history. He and his family reside near Toronto, Ontario. Hey there, Tim. Thank you so much for joining us for the show today. Really glad to have you here. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I am really looking forward to our conversation. Um, I'm just thankful for you to share more about the new book that you just released called Seasons of Sorrow, The Pain of Loss and the Comfort of God. But before we dive into our conversation, for those particularly who are not familiar with you and kind of the background of this book, I wondered if you would share a bit about what this book is about and what your motivation was for writing it. Yeah, the book um, begins on November 3rd, 2020, which was a day that began like any other, but a day that ended very differently. On the evening of November 3rd, uh, we got news that my son, Nick, he was a student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Boyce College, we got the news that he had collapsed and before too long, the news that he had passed away. As far as we knew, there is there are no premonitions of this. We, we, we weren't aware that he had any medical conditions and so on. So it was just completely out of the blue, completely unexpected. In the aftermath of that, I did what I always do when I'm going through good things or bad things, which is I, I wrote about it. That's just how I process things. Um, I think I express in the book, I don't know what I think or what I believe or anything really until I write it about, until I write about it. It's how I process things. And uh, so I started writing, not initially to write a book, just to work things through in my mind, to inform people who, uh, family members, people who read the blog and so on. But um, as the year went by and I kept writing, I started to think, well, maybe there's a book here. And it turned into a book that is just a sort of real-time journey that begins on the night Nick died and ends exactly one year later on the first anniversary. Well, first of all, I just want to say, I think I am so sorry for your loss, but then too, so thankful for how the Lord strengthened you to steward this story for the purposes of being a conduit of his comfort for other people who are hurting and wrestling with really hard and heavy questions, uh, faith questions in relation to, you know, sudden tragedy and, and loss. And so thank you for that. But I also want to say that we have had a few different conversations on the podcast about grief and loss. But for this conversation, I really want to hone in on what I think you do really well in this book, which is to just give words to some of the particular thoughts and questions that grieving people have that they may not even know how to articulate or they may be thinking that 
to share these types of uh, thoughts or questions is somehow unchristian or unfaithful or strange. And so I want to really talk about that for the majority of our conversation today. I think it might be helpful to hear about how grief impacts our whole person. And you talk a little bit about this in the beginning of the book. Do you mind sharing a bit about your experience and the observations about how Nick's sudden death affected you as an embodied soul? Yeah, it's a very interesting question and something I don't think I would have thought much about prior to this experience. But uh, we did come to learn that grief is absolutely overwhelming in part because it does take over all of you. So your thoughts are consumed by it. Obviously, your emotions are, are out of whack and there's just every part of us is becomes engaged by it. And so we we suffered emotionally you know, just trying to to wrap our minds around this thing and then feeling all the emotions uh, that came with it. We went into some very dark places emotionally, very difficult places emotionally. Mentally, it consumed us. We entered into what one person called grief fog or grief brain, which was actually helpful. And we met with a couple shortly thereafter, after Nick's death. And they, they sort of, their, their first question literally was, do you still have grief brain? And that gave us words for something we were experiencing, but didn't quite know how to articulate. And spiritually, it's all consuming. You're just doing business with the Lord in terms of what what have you done and why did you do it and what does it mean? And then even physically, it, it's very hard to function physically. And you know, we, Nick died during fairly early in the COVID pandemic. And so we had a lot of isolation in those early days where people weren't able to be with us. So when we did emerge again. I remember a couple of friends looking at me and saying, oh, you you don't look good. You've lost a lot of weight. You're just, you're not looking good. Are you taking care of yourself? And so part of that, I think, was the start. They hadn't seen me for a number of weeks, but also just the the reality that grief does take over even our bodies. You often talk about at being a loss for words in this book. And of course, it's not necessarily that you had a loss of words to write. As you said, this writing is how you, you process. But it was that you found yourself oftentimes at a loss of words to speak, like the actual act of speaking the words. So why do you think it's so difficult to verbalize our pain and emotion in seasons of sorrow? Yeah, this is something else I've thought about a fair bit and just been trying to to figure out. But I think I've come to the realization that it must stem from the fact that God didn't create us to be able to cope with grief of, of this kind. We're created perfect creatures in a perfect world with death just being this consequence for something we were never meant to do. So death was always meant to be a complete mystery. Death has entered into the world. And though death is common and universal now, still doesn't mean that God created us in order to understand it or in order to be okay with it or to be able to really face it in all its horror. So I do think that's a lot of it is it's just so horrifying that our little human minds can't cope with it. And then trying to articulate what we're thinking and what we're feeling or how we're dealing with it just becomes so, so difficult. And I think as well, some of our, some of our inability to express ourselves is probably a kind of self-protection mechanism. I think the reason our mind goes dark or uh, we ourselves in some way, just all of us begins to shut down is probably similar to physical pain. When you really hurt yourself, sometimes you don't feel the pain right away. And that's probably the body's way of protecting itself so you can get some help or something. And I do think probably in, in grief, it's much the same. Your, your, your faculties are reduced to the bare minimum so you can at least cope with the, the necessities of life. 
And then it's later is, and that's why I think grief gets harder as time goes on because your body begins to awaken, your mind begins to awaken. Now you're able to think with a little more clarity. And uh, that's where I think it sets in weeks or months later. In the book, you reveal that the year 2020 began with the mourning of your father and ended with the mourning of your son. And we all know 2020 was also a year of tremendous loss and hardship, like you mentioned, due to global pandemic. And early on in your grief journey, you wrote something that was really striking to me. You said that you didn't just fear God anymore, but that you felt afraid of God. And so you write, quote, before life was easy because God's sovereignty always seemed to incline toward the things I wanted anyway. But now life is hard because I see that God's sovereignty may also be inclined toward the things I dread, the things I would never wish for. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by being afraid of God and how reflecting on his sovereignty has impacted your grief journey? I found myself thinking after Nick died about an experience several months before that, where I spoke to to my wife, spoke to Aileen and just said, the more I read in the scriptures, the more I become convinced that we must suffer at some point. There must be some suffering in the future for us because it's just so clear in scripture that we should expect to encounter difficulties. And I said, I think we need to prepare ourselves that we've had such a charmed and blessed life in the sense that we had suffered so little. So, you know, my father died at the very end of 2019 and that's that's a difficult thing, but dad had raised us to know that he was gonna die. He joked about his own death. He was ready to die in the sense that he loved the Lord and was ready to be with them. And so, yes, it was a hardship, but it wasn't grueling because it wasn't completely unexpected. I mean, we just know that we outlive our parents. It's just the way the world works. But I had this sense that we should prepare ourselves for suffering. I'm, I'm not saying that's a, a premonition or anything as much as just, you know, the Bible is is clear on that. I've always had a fear of God from my young young days. You know, my parents raised me to have a fear of God in that sense of assessing God's power versus my own or God's strength versus my own. And, and so we fear God in the sense the Bible calls us to that uh, out of wisdom, we fear God. But in the aftermath of Nick's death, I think I was afraid of God in the sense I now have this assessment of how we might use his power. And so God just in a moment, he didn't get in touch in advance to, to let me know he was going to do this. He didn't have me fill out a permission form, you know, to say, yeah, I give you permission to do this. He just in a moment, in an instant, took, took someone we loved so much, took someone who represented our future, someone who, you know, just was so very precious to us. He was gone. And yeah, I mean, I, I would have known intellectually that God could do this, but once God actually did it, it left me very afraid of him in the sense of well, if God did this first. That's how strong he is. That's how big he is. That's how, how mysterious his purposes are. That somehow for his good pleasure, for something that makes sense to the mind of God and furthers the glory of God, he'll, he'll do something like this. Uh, but then also, what else might he do? God's called me to suffer this. Why not suffer something else? And and so for a time, yeah, I really was afraid of God in the sense that just fearing what else might come and no longer feeling like, well, God's will always agrees with mine anyway. But oh no, God's will might be vastly different from my own desires. So then how did you take the next step past that? How then do we do we not look at that sovereignty and get crushed? by despair and hopelessness? How did you move toward a, a deeper faith and trust in that time? 
I had to to remind myself that God's sovereignty doesn't stand alone. God's sovereignty is not the sum total of who God is and how God acts. And so anytime we're going through a, a period of suffering, grief, trauma, whatever it is, we need to find something to anchor ourselves to, right? We have to have some starting point and say, hey, whatever else is true, I know this is true. And I'm going to start drawing out from that. That'll, that'll be my starting place. And my starting place became the character of God. I just said, I know that God is good. And if God is good, then I can extrapolate out from there. God has done no evil. He's not done anything wrong. He's not done anything I can, even in that sense, object to as if I'm somehow casting aspersions on on God's character or the rightness of his actions. And so God is sovereign, absolutely. But God is sovereignly good, not sovereignly bad, or God is sovereignly purposeful, not sovereignly arbitrary. And so once I really grounded myself in God's goodness, then I could interpret this circumstance through the goodness of God and say, God sovereignly did something that I know is an expression of his goodness. I know that intellectually. So now I just need to believe it. I need to live like that's true. So that's not going to make me, that's not going to take my sorrow away. It's not going to take my sadness away. But what it will do is help me understand that God is up to something good through this, which means I can look for the goodness in it. I can look for God's smile rather than his frown. And uh, that was tremendously helpful, tremendously freeing. And I, I talked in the book about how after the funeral, my family flew out to the mountains of Western Canada just to, to get away. And really, I just needed to be out in nature where, um, you know, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. In my mind, the mountains always declare the glory of God. And I think it was really some of those mornings I'd go up by myself, COVID had struck. So we had BAMP, this majestic park almost to ourselves. I could go out in the mornings and be in the top spots for hours by myself, just thinking and praying and singing and taking photos and all these things I love to do. And I think it was somewhere in there that the Lord just really helped me see these things and believe these things and then start to implement them in my life and uh, lead my, my wife and children into understanding them or embracing them as well. That's, that's really beautiful. Just a beautiful testimony too, to how God works through his word and his world to offer his encouragements, his comfort, his counsel. And so I think that's really great. And you also reflect on a series of what you call haunting thoughts how that was a really great word to describe these thoughts that I think many of our listeners will be able to resonate with. You consider, quote, could it be that Nick's death is God's discipline toward me? Could it be that Nick was some kind of idol in my life and to loose my grip on him, God took him away? Could this be all my fault? How did you work through those kinds of incredibly difficult and painful questions? This was my BAMP moment here. This was standing before the mountains and watching the sunrise, just in those sorts of moments. This is this is where I was wrestling through this. And so I've read a lot of the Puritans and the people who follow the Puritans. And one of the emphases they had was that God chastises his children. They write about that quite a lot. And yes, God is a good father and we're very often disobedient children. And so God does chastise us. We understand this This is a reality in the Christian life, and it needs to be for God to to shape and conform us. Um, the question is, when we go through a time of suffering, could it be that God is chastising us in some way? Could it be God's loving hand of discipline? Um, but to, to wrestle with that one, I think I simply had to take myself out of the center of the universe. And that's our default assumption to think that we really are the the center of it all. 
But I had to to wrestle through with, with just the understanding that Nick was his own man. He was his own man before the Lord. And there'd be no reason I could think of that God would take my son as some sort of punishment for me or something I had done. And, you know, I, I had prayerfully considered, is there is there something in my life that God is really reacting against? But I'm, I'm not convinced there is or was. But even so, I, I just came to that realization that, you know, God, God was interacting with Nick on his own. And not only that, God doesn't often give us the reasons for what he does. Very seldom do we really come to a firm understanding of this is why God did it. We can see the results of what God has done. We can see how God is using these things, but that's not the same as saying that's why God did it. God has his own mysterious purposes and uh, the secret things belong to the Lord and we leave them there and just say we trust God. We have faith in God to save us, faith in God to direct this world and our lives. And it falls to us down just to say, what will we do with this? Yeah, just that occasion to be faithful to what you do know about what God has said he's doing and, and who he says he is, instead of trying to spin your wheels on calculating and formulating things that he has not revealed to us. And so I appreciate that that's kind of how you framed it, because you didn't land at a conclusion like, well, this is it in stone, but you leave room for mystery where that's necessary and that's helpful, I think. So thank you. I also appreciated how you acknowledge the reality that grief is both an individual and a shared experience. You talk about walking through grief as a family and how even though the loss was common between you and your wife and your daughters, the individual experiences of grief had, quote, many hues, many shades, and many facets. So can you share about how these observations informed the way you prayed for yourself and for your family during this season? So I guess this was another realization that just hadn't occurred to me before, but um, we do grieve very differently. And so we're all familiar with the love languages terminology. It was just a little bit in when I realized there were essentially grief languages as well, that according to our personality, according to our gender, according to just who God has made us to be, we all express grief differently, which is well and good, but it does introduce some challenges, even some opportunities to sin. And one of those challenges would be, again, because we put ourselves in the center of the universe, it's easy to think that other people are grieving wrong, that because you're not grieving like I am, you're doing it wrong. And your grief is only good in so far as it reflects my own. And that was a, that was a difficulty. And you know, we really realized there's not only are there grief languages, there's also complementarity in grief. And so, you know, God has made men and women to be different, moms and dads to be different. And so I grieved like a man and a daddy, lean grieved like a woman and a mom. And those are different kinds of grief, just the differences between us, the good God created distinctions between us. And so what we had to guard against was starting to snipe at each other. You know, I think generally men tend to emerge from grief a little faster, a little sooner, where they start to discover a new normal. If the wife is is not there yet, then the husband is prone to be to, to be sniping at her, to think she's, uh, you know, get over it already. It's time to move on. Whereas her temptation might be to look at him and to think, well, maybe you just didn't love him that much if you're if you're already moving past this. And so having to grant, to pray for one another lots, to have to grant lots of grace, and then just praying that God would do the same work in all of us, which is to lead us through this and help us to, to live for, for him, for his glory, to turn our, our sorrows into service, all of these things, but in ways that are consistent with our particular experience of grief. Each of us experiences loss in different ways, 
And then also just according to our different personalities and calling. So as you were navigating, praying for your family, caring for your family, shepherding your family really through this loss, I wonder if you could share, I think one of the words you used was getting to a place of acceptance. And so I wonder if you could talk a bit about that and what that looked like for you and in your family as you led them through this season of grief. I think in that acceptance, there's a form of acceptance that's hard to come to in the early days, which is just the acceptance that this person is gone. You really can sort of live in denial. And for a time, your instincts are still toward that person being here. You still expect that person to call, to walk by. You still see that face in the crowd. So definitely that, you have to work that through. But I think what I was focusing on more there is accepting it in the sense of accepting this as the will of God. Uh, which is really just then submitting to God, I think, to to believe in God to the degree where you can say, God willed this. We're not going to blame anyone else ultimately for this death. We're not going to say it was anyone's will ultimately, but God's, you know, God is one of the power over life and death, whatever the secondary means are, it was still God's will. So we need to, we need to submit to God in that and then accept that his will is good, even when it doesn't feel like that, even when it seems so wrong. And then that that sense of acceptance and I'm accepting what God has given me then. God has called me to carry this difficult circumstance, to bear this grief. And I'm going to take it from his hand as something good and something meaningful and a, a means through which I can bring honor and glory to him. Um, so I think there's a lot wrapped up in, in that. I appreciate that in the book, you talk about the anxiety that you had to take a look at and, and examine. You said that Nick's death has made us face mortality and human fragility in a whole new way. My children may as well be made of glass. I thought that was a very striking statement. Can you talk about what you meant by it and how you learned to respond to what you call anxiety's tug? I think this goes back a little bit to what we're talking about before, just a sense of God's power, God's sovereignty, that God's purposes are mysterious and that we really are players in God's drama. This is, this is my father's world, as the hymn says. And um, when we when we submit our lives to the Lord, when we come to him, we, we don't get to say, well, save my soul, but now let me do my own thing or, you know, grant me your forgiveness, but don't intervene in my life in other ways. We're surrendering all we have to the Lord and that includes our children. And so I think the specific circumstance I wrote about was when the holidays were over and my daughter was heading back down to Boise, she, like brother is a student down there. And now we're sending her that the world is still pretty much shut down through the pandemic. And we're sending her whatever it is, a thousand miles or 600 miles, whatever it is south. And we're, we're stuck here. And it was just absolutely terrifying to have to do that. And we still didn't have that sense. There's still this sense within us that bad things were going to happen. One bad thing happened. And so maybe we're going to be like Job, you know, God wants us to be the modern day Job. There is loss after loss after loss is going to come upon us. And so hence felt like our children are made of glass. And it took some time before we really got our bearings again and began to to believe that the world operates as it did before. And our children, you know, probably will be fine. We don't need to believe that God's calling us to something far more difficult than already we've we've endured. So. If he does, we understand that that would be his calling and he would expect us to embrace that just as well. Tim, I want to ask you, in response to wrestling through some of these thoughts and questions, was there ever a time where you shared what you were thinking or what you were fearing in those moments with someone and you got an unhelpful response? Can you, do you mind sharing maybe a bit about how 
that has been for you and how you've navigated maybe unhelpful, but well-meaning thoughts and encouragements? I think what you said there is key, well-meaning. I think we decided we were just going to take whatever good we could out of people's attempts at comfort and we weren't going to hold it against them if they said things that were hurtful or boneheaded or otherwise just unhelpful. We would just leave that and not hold it against them. And so I think some people did say things that were probably pretty unwise or unhelpful, but we just chose to overlook that in love and not to allow ourselves to feel bad about it or to grow discouraged or angry about it. So I think it it bears saying that I think we came into this time with a pretty well-developed theology. And so if somebody said something to us that was untrue, I don't think we often really had to wrestle with it. So we weren't trying to construct the theology of the person or character or works of God in this time. Uh, We're more just trying to apply the theology to this terrible circumstance. Yeah, and that makes me think of a Martin Lloyd-Jones quote, where he says, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And I, I think that's exactly what it is that you're talking about. But there's also the sense in which, like you said, too, you can have the theoretical head knowledge, but until the experience comes, you don't know exactly how it's going to feel. To go back to MLJ, who you just quoted, that's a military uh, example there, a military metaphor. And of course, you can prepare your soldiers But once they get into battle, that's where they either have to implement all that preparation or they just run away. And I think it's much the same for us. We can have the theology in place and that's absolutely the right thing to do. But yes, not until these great waves of sorrow are coming over us that we really have this opportunity then to to put our theology into practice. And I spoke to somebody just a little time ago, uh, a short time ago, who had lost a child as well. He was talking about how his faith wasn't thrown away in that time, but it was renovated. And I think that's very much what he meant. Some things got moved around, some things he thought he understood, maybe he didn't so much. And um, other things had to just, you know, be shifted a little bit. But overall, he went in knowing God and came out knowing God. We've got a few more questions here in our conversation. Early, you write in the book about how watching your son's casket be lowered into the ground, there was no harder moment for you at that time than watching that. But then later, a fresh wave of grief hit on the date that he was set to be married. You wrote, quote, I thought this would be easier by now. I thought I would have come farther. And I think those two short sentences articulate a painful reality of living with grief, namely that, as Mark Rogup would say, our, our grief is not tame and it's not linear. Can you describe the thoughts and emotion that that particular wedding date stirred up within you and share how God comforted you in it? So that was... Several months after Nick died, I guess between November and May, not long. And yeah, and I, I think as I express it in the book, we had been, we'd already grieved what was and what we had lost. And we, we had grieved the present as well. So we had grieved the past and the present. But on that day, suddenly we realized that there would be no future as it pertained to Nick. And so I think now we had this opportunity, birthdays, Nick had actually had a birthday and Christmas. We had celebrated Christmases with him. So those were times to look back and lament. But here was something that hadn't happened yet that represented the future. And so I think it was it was the day we had to say farewell to the future in that sense. And we, we had been so pleased when Nick had fallen in love and so pleased when he had gotten engaged to Ren. And uh, we, were just, we were just so thrilled with the future he was building for himself. And I think that day just made us face really starkly 
that it wouldn't come. There was no future for Nick, at least until it comes to the new heavens and the new earth. And so on that day, we were particularly broken and sorrowful. And as the hymn says, when sorrows like sea billows roll, you know, there's times where you're in the trough and there isn't a ton of grief, but then suddenly this great wave just breaks against you and you think to be drowned. And it was one of those days. And then, yeah, that, that was the day we were just there, Elaine and I in the cemetery together, just, just weeping and broken. And uh, heard somebody speak my name and turned around and there was this couple there who had been reading the blog, um, lives nearby. Their son had been buried in the same cemetery just a couple of years prior. And uh, they just ministered to us there. And uh, we just saw how God had woven that together, that they don't usually visit that time of day or that day on Saturdays. We don't visit on Saturdays typically. And yet there we both were at the same time. And it was just so clear God had done this. And uh, especially when we needed prayer from people who understood our grief, there they were. And so uh, just a tremendous blessing for us. And uh, an answer to prayers, we probably hadn't really known how to pray. And Aileen's often expressed since then, in some ways, I think, was the first day she really felt cared for by God. She really knew then that God was going to get us through this. And God was really, really with us. because He provided just so, so sovereignly in such a beautiful way. Oh, one more question before we come to the end of our conversation. But, and it was really a hard time to narrow down all the questions. I feel like I wanted to talk about every chapter, but I can't do that. Um, so I think the last one I want to ask has to do with the love that remains for those we have lost. And you write, quote, one of the great sorrows that comes with the death of a loved one is being left with the feelings that can no longer be acted on. What do you mean by that statement? And then what can we do with those feelings that are left? Love is such a pleasure. Um, we love to love others. It is just such a pleasure to be able to love people. And of course, as Christians, we know that love is a verb. Love has to take form and action. And so we love to act on behalf of the people we love. It's just a, it's a tremendous blessing and tremendous joy to be able to do things that express that love. And so throughout my life, I had in many ways shown Nick that I loved him. I loved to love him. That was one of my, the true pleasures of my life. It's a pleasure of any parent. And then in an instant, Nick was gone and there is no way I could love him anymore. What can I do for somebody who's gone? You know, I can't speak to him in a way that I then he hears as far as I know. I, I can't hug him anymore. Our, our physical relationship has ended all of these things. And so it was just tremendously, it just left this huge, huge boy in my life. And I was reading the Bible one day and came to the story of David expressing love to the son of his best friend, Jonathan. So Jonathan had died and that left this huge gap in, in David's life. And one day he got to thinking, is there anybody left of Jonathan's family that I can love for the sake of Jonathan? So in order to display, to continue to display my love for Jonathan, is there somebody I can express love to? And he was told that uh, this um, guy Mephibosheth continued to, to live on, who was from that line, from that family. And, um, he had been living in obscurity and probably very difficult life as somebody who is disabled and dropped as a child. And so uh, what does David do? He welcomes him into the palace, welcomes him into his family and loves him. He didn't feel anything for Mephibosheth. There was nothing there. He loved Jonathan. This was his expression of love for his friend. And I really, really identified with that. I just allowed that to call me to love the people Nick loved. So to love his friends, to love his fiance to love his his family. And I think that's been one of the callings. And out of that even grew something like a scholarship that was 
at the seminary where people can give to that scholarship and it it goes out then to some of the people Nick knew and loved, or at least to the ministry Nick loved, which was he wanted to come back to Canada and serve in the local church here. Ran is deeply integrated into our lives. We love her dearly, though they didn't marry. We uh, treat her as a daughter and are, are glad to. And many of these are just expressions of love to Nick. And it's, it uh, does allow me then to continue to express that love for him in this period after he's gone and before I've arrived with them. Well, we're just about done, but I would love to, speaking of love, I would love to invite you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. Now, there may be someone listening today who feels like they are drowning in their grief. What would you say to this person to comfort them with the hope and help of Jesus Christ? One of the very first things we had to to rehearse to one another is we can do this. And so on that first night, our, our world was going dark. We looked each other in the eye, Aileen and I, and said, we can do this. And we knew we could do this because we didn't have to do it alone. We know that God is with us, that Jesus Christ has entered into this world. He saved us. He's He's empowered us by his spirit. We're, we're not enduring any of this alone. And so I would say to that that grieving person, you can do this because you don't need to do it alone. You can endure this time of sorrow. And then I would encourage them to define those truths they're going to anchor themselves to. What is absolutely fundamentally true, especially true about God? And then start to draw the consequences into your own life. And then I would say understanding that God does nothing that's arbitrary, nothing that's capricious. You can then ask what God is calling you to through this. God comforts us so we can be comforting, uh, comforting to others. God um, uses us in the lives of other people. And so just believing that God has given this to you for a reason, for a purpose. Um, so you can, you can love and serve him all the more and to understand it as stewardship to say, God, I'm receiving this from you. I want to faithfully steward it, um, for, for the good of others and for your glory. I think that was a, a tremendous blessing for us to be able to think in those terms. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for those words of encouragement. I want to let the listener know that the chapters in this book are very short. And so this would make a very helpful gift, I think, to someone who is trying to work through some of those very difficult thoughts and questions. I want to let the listener know that you can click on the link in the show description that will take you to a page on IBCD's website where you can access Tim's information and um, and take your next steps on your grief journey if that's something that you're walking through right now. But Tim, before we go, um, if there's someone listening to our chat today and they want to, if they aren't already following you and they want to get connected with you and your extensive blogging and writing ministry, where can they find you online? They can find me at just chalice.com. That's C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S.com. You can go there or Instagram slash chalice or Facebook slash chalice, wherever you'll find me there. And I hope there's something there that will be a blessing. Awesome. Well, again, Tim, thank you so much for stewarding your your son's story, your story, your family's story for the benefit of all of us. I'm very thankful. Thank you. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new episodes release. 
Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.